Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Thus far, God's word, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we have asked that you would instruct us in your ways and We know that you've promised to do so. We pray that you would bless the preaching and the hearing of your word, uh, that your spirit would attend on both, that you would be at work amongst your people, for you have given us the spirit, even throughout our days. We thank you, O God, that you have promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Now, Lord God, as our good shepherd, feed us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Surely, even you older children have become aware, as you've heard the preaching of the word, that the Lord Jesus Christ is unique. There is no other like him. In all of history, there is none like him. I regularly remind you that Jesus is a unique person. In him, we find one who is conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the only begotten of the Father. He's unique in this respect. As our confession says, drawing from Scripture, conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, without composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man? Yet one Christ, the only mediator, between God and man. Unique, there is no other. And Christ is uniquely suited then to be our Redeemer. Indeed, he need to be one of us, as well as to be God, that he might redeem his people. His humanity humanity is so veiled by his deity that for 30 years he walked amongst men and they were unaware. Uh, No one, I should say no one, few would have suspected that he was more than just a man. But then, in the fullness of time, he came upon the scene to do the work which the Father gave his Son to do. And that work is unique as well. There were others who foreshadowed in some type. You think of the prophets, uh, some of the kings, and the priests. They were foreshadowing the work of Christ. But Christ comes as prophet, priest, and king, all in one man, all three offices. He came into the world sent by his Father to save sinners the people that the Father had given to his Son before the world began. And in order to fulfill his work of Redeemer, Jesus was unique in that he held all three of these offices. It was necessary that he be our prophet and our priest and our king. He speaks the truth of God to us. He has sacrificed himself to save us from our sins. And he even now makes intercession for us. And he rules over all of creation. For the Lord God Almighty has set him on his throne in Zion and given into his hand the entirety of creation. 
Well, all this being true, when John comes to record how Jesus revealed himself uh, to humanity, that is to people, we find uh, that John, like the other gospel writers, uh, uses many figures of speech, many word pictures to communicate the richness, the fullness, the completeness of Christ, and again we'll say the uniqueness of Christ. And we have seen a number of these already, how Jesus proclaimed, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world. In this 10th chapter, Jesus declares, I am the door of the sheep, and immediately on the heels of that, he says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus is unique. We'll see other pronouncements from the Lord as well. This morning, we're considering his declaration, I am the door. Now, certainly, even you children can say that you know, a shepherd and a door seem to be very different. Uh, how, how can he be the door and the shepherd? Well, it's certainly because those things are talking about the function of Christ, the, the things that he fulfills. This morning we want to consider that. Uh, we understand that what we take up following verses 1 through 5 that we considered last week, moving on through the, the most of the rest of the chapter, is not so much an ex- explanation of what he's already said. You know, we heard in verse 6 that the people did not understand, and it's not like he said, okay, well, let me explain it further. It's more so that it's an expansion of what he has already said. And, of course, expanding on what he said, there's further uh, revelation, further making known of the truth. Jesus, we could say, is opening the window and shedding more light on the uniqueness of his being, the beauty and the fullness of his person as our Redeemer. Indeed, how uniquely suited he is to be our Redeemer. We're going to use four main headings this morning. Jesus is the door. Jesus invites sinners, Jesus saves sinners, and Jesus gives abundant life. In verse 6, John records, uh, and having been recorded what Jesus said, he he inserts, as we often see him done, a a little bit of an explanation that this illustration that Jesus was using, the people did not understand that. We are a foolish people. We are dull and thick in our senses. But let us remember that those who heard that statement, that what Jesus has been saying that day, there were those among them that were the Pharisees. And they too did not understand the things. Some of that because of the dullness of their mind, the sinfulness of their heart, and the obstinacy of their hearts towards Christ. But the Pharisees were the experts of the Scripture. The Old Testament was well known to them. They, they celebrated much their ability to quote it and argue and debate it. Uh, indeed, they spent much of their time doing that very thing. If, if those men had better understood the Scriptures that they were so familiar with, they would have understood what Jesus is saying in this passage. They would have understood why he would say to them that, that, that there's the sheep and the doorkeeper and that there are thieves and robbers. But they did not understand. They did not follow his teaching. They were totally ignorant, which is remarkable because those of you that know the Old Testament, it's filled with images about sheep and shepherds and the Lord using that, uh, the Lord God Almighty, uh, Jehovah as he revealed himself. The the covenant faithful Lord uh, frequently revealed himself as a shepherd and referred to his people as sheep. Jesus was teaching that he was the one as the shepherd, who would separate the true Israel from Israel. You remember when we were in the book of Romans, and Paul says, not all Israel is Israel. That can be a little confusing. What he was saying is, there's this vastness of the descendants of Abraham, those who have come from Jacob's 12 sons, who are counted the nation of Israel, 
But God also promised that he would have the people, that Abraham would have sons who, like Abraham, believed God, and it was accounted unto them as righteousness. Paul refers to the true Israel as those who by faith believe God and it was accounted to them as righteousness. And thus, not all of Israel, that physical nation, was the true Israel who were born from above, born of the Holy Spirit, born unto God. Jesus has been teaching this for some time. That's one of the reasons the Pharisees are so angry with him. Because they just assume, and indeed they taught the people to assume, hey, we're sons of Abraham, we're good. Everything's great. We're going to heaven. doesn't really matter. We're sons of Abraham. We're shoe-ins. But Jesus has been teaching that you know, just being of the flesh a son of Abraham was no guarantee of entrance into heaven, coming into the kingdom of God. The true children of Abraham are saved by faith in Abraham's seed. Remember how God said to Abraham that he would have a seed. And again, in the foolishness of sin, the Israelites assume, hey, That's us. But Paul in Galatians stresses that he says seed, not seeds. And indeed that harkens back to the garden right after sin when God made a promise that it would be the seed of the woman and he would crush the serpent's head even as the serpent bruised his heel. This is one of the great uh, motifs that runs through the Old Testament. Right standing before God is not by birth. It's not by works. That's why you children, though you are born into a covenant home and you are born unto believing parents, that does not assure you of heaven. You too, like your parents, must repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. You must look to the Lord with faith. Just look to Christ as your Savior. And then you too will be full citizens of the household of God. There are many in the church today, the visible church that we can see, who are not of Israel. They're not truly saved. We're a mixed multitude. It has always been so. So indeed, Paul is right, and we need to hear what he says when he says, make your calling and election sure. And particularly to children who have received the sign and the seal of the covenant baptism, Paul says, improve on your baptism. That is, take hold of the promises that God has made to you. That he will save you if you come to him by faith in Christ. It is necessary for each and every one of us. Now previously Jesus has said uh, that to him alone would the doorkeeper open. And last week we considered how there was very specific things about who the Messiah was and, and how he would fulfill that role. And we see Jesus coming, fulfilling each and every one of those. And so therefore he rightfully uh, is let through by the doorkeeper to enter in and bring his sheep out. But Jesus, as he continues to expand, he drops the idea of the doorkeeper letting the shepherd in. He's still the shepherd. But now he refers himself to being as being the door, the door for the sheep. Um, in Israel, you know, last week I described how, particularly in the larger villages, there would be a large fold, a rock-enclosed uh, uh, fold, a build up with rock, a place where shepherds would come in in the day and put their sheep in with other sheep. And, and of course, the doorkeeper would watch over the sheep by night. In the morning, he would only let the shepherd in to bring out the sheep. But out further from the, uh, the, the larger villages and smaller il- villages, or even out on the hills of Israel, there would be uh, more rustic, more crude folds, uh, gatherings of rocks, perhaps it involved a, a side of a mountain that shepherds have created. And in that case, 
a single shepherd would bring his sheep in, and there was no doorkeeper. There was no guard, no watchman. The shepherd stayed with the sheep through the night, and he would bring them in through the opening, and then he would lay down in the opening, and thus he became the gate. He became the door. He was the one who set watch through the night to look after the sheep. And it seems to be that as Jesus shifts to referring to himself as being the door, that he has this in mind. And again, you know, we're not familiar with these things, but indeed, the people of that day would have been very familiar. And so Jesus says, I am the door. As a matter of fact, he's very emphatic. He says, I, I, I alone am the door. And the Greek language is communicated that way. But he's also the door to the sheep. If you want to get to the sheep, he's the door to the sheep. But he's also the door for the sheep that they can enter in. We want to consider that because that's communicated here. All the blessings that come from God to sheep. Now we'll shift it. All the blessings that come from God for sinners, for that's who Jesus has in mind, we're referred to as the sheep. They come for Christ. They come through him and through him alone. There is no other to turn to. There is no other Savior. As he says later in John chapter 14, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the light. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is the door to the sheep. If we would enter into the fold of God, if we were to enter into the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, if we would be part of that invisible, enduring, true church, if we would be part of true Israel, we enter through Christ and Christ alone. There is no other way. Thus Jesus says, I I alone am the door. He is the door to the sheep. But he's also the door for the sheep. Having entered in through Christ and received the blessings for Christ, he's the door for the sheep. As we come in and go out, he says in the passage that, you know, those, uh, in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So he's the door for the sheep. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says, they came before me? You see that right there in verse 8? All who came, whoever came before me are thieves and robbers. Now, as we've read that, perhaps your children wonder what he's talking about. You know, some have suggested, well, it's all those, the prophets and everybody in the Old Testament history uh, were those who came before him. Now, that ought to just kind of strike you as wrong. No. They were good prophets. God sent them. Uh, We can't assume that he's saying they're thieves and robbers. That would be a wrong conclusion. John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he was the one raised up by God in the spirit and the power of Elijah to introduce Jesus to the world. He's the one that cried out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we can't conclude that he's talking about them. Nor should we conclude that... uh, He's talking about false messiahs of that day. That was the case. There's always been those showing up. And indeed, remember when we've talked earlier in John that there was this heightened awareness at the time that Christ comes. There was an anticipation, expectation that the Messiah was due to arrive. They were, they were looking for him. And that makes a very a fertile environment then for people to rise up and say, well, I'm him. And I'm him. And that was the case. Jesus later would warn his own people that there would be those who would come after him saying, well, I'm the Messiah. But see, that's nowhere in the text. So it's, Jesus is not talking about them, although it would be true they're thieves and robbers. But the word before is used several times in John's gospel, and it has uh, the meaning 
of uh, two particular meetings, and both, I think, are in this particular case. Before in time, and we've kind of considered some of those who might have become, maybe I should say, before in time, that have come before Christ in time. But there's also the sense of presence or location, those who are before him, even as you are seated before me now. We use before in that same sense. But what Jesus is speaking, he's using in both these cases, it's clear that Jesus is speaking of those who are the Pharisees. They were there before he came. They were before him in time. And they're also before him. They are right before him as he is speaking. And these are the ones who are thieves and robbers. They want the people to follow them. They don't want them following after Jesus. And if you follow after the Pharisees, you will not gain eternal life. What a thing to be stolen away, that you would have someone who would deceive you treacherously to lead you away from the very one who can save your sinful soul and gave you entrance into the kingdom of God and provide spiritual blessings now and forevermore. What thievery. And indeed, the Pharisees were so determined in that purpose that they will seek to have Pilate crucify him. They are thieves and robbers. They also want position and power for themselves. And they see Jesus as a threat, so they're willing to destroy him that they can maintain their position. They are thieves and robbers. Look with me back at John 9.22. You see that. The message of these that was spread, the, the man who was blind that Jesus has healed, they brought the, his parents before these Pharisees. And his parents were very guarded in what they said. They said these things because they feared the Jews. Remember, that's John's uh, way of referring to these religious leaders, and particularly the Pharisees. They feared the Jews. What? For the Jews had already agreed that if any would confess that he, Jesus, was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue thieves and robbers, and that's exactly what they did to the man whom Jesus had healed of his lifelong blindness. They put him out. And as we've noted, the good shepherd went and sought him out and made himself known face to face, even as he had already revealed himself in the heart of that man by the working of the Holy Spirit. But notice also that Jesus does not say, those who came before me were thieves and robbers. He says they are. He's talking present tense right now. Those men, these Pharisees, are thieves and robbers. It's exactly what they're doing. They're actively engaging to do. They want to interfere and hinder people who are seeking to enter in. And if you read the prophets, you will find that same rebuke. As God's faithful prophets rebuke false prophets who seek to lead the people astray and turn them away from Christ. Indeed, there were many who sought to enter heaven by walking after the manner of the Pharisees. What did they teach? Keep the law. It was an assumption that they could keep the law, that they could keep it perfectly, and then somehow on judgment day they would show up and God would be impressed and say, well, come on in. What foolishness. Because we're sinners. There's no righteousness in us. All our works are but filthy rags. Remember the rich young ruler, how he came to Jesus. He says, Rabbi, good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? That was the mindset, something that could be done. And Jesus got to the heart of the matter and gave him something that he could not do. He said, go and sell all that you have. He was rich. Give it to the poor. And then the critical part, and come follow me. And he was not willing to do that. These Pharisees who are thieves and robbers are not willing to follow Jesus. And indeed, they would hinder and keep others from following him as well. You see, children, Jesus alone is the door for the sheep. 
if we would enter into the kingdom of God, if we, like sheep, would enter into the fold and the security and the safety that Jesus provides, to be enclosed by him and enclosed behind him, with him standing as the door to guard and to keep us from marauders and thieves and bears and lions, we must enter through Christ. Again, go back to what we heard in that conversation with Nicodemus. Very, very familiar verse, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him, it's not, you know, can do enough good works, can satisfy me in some way. No, whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus is the door for the sheep. Jesus is the way for sinners to come to a holy God. Jesus is the way by which our sins are cleansed. And that is accomplished by the uniqueness of his person. He's God and man. No man can satisfy God for his own sins, never mind to satisfy God for the sins of others. But Jesus, uniquely being the Son of God, was sinless. And yet he, as we heard earlier in the service, laid down his life for his sheep. He came into the world for this purpose. True sheep don't listen to the thieves and the robbers. That's what we heard back in verse 5. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, for they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. True sheep listen to Jesus. True sheep follow Jesus. True sheep obey Jesus. And how do we know what Jesus would have us to do? It's in his word. Are you following Christ? Are you obeying Christ? As one who professes to be a follower of Christ, to be a new creature in Christ, by God's grace working in you, bringing you to Christ by faith alone, are you following Christ? Do you read the word? Do you seek to hide it in your heart that you might use it as it, that weapon against the, the tempter? Remember how it was in Jesus and was in, led into the wilderness. And Satan came to do battle with him and Jesus quoted the word. And then Satan himself took the word, being a thief and a liar and a deceiver, and twisted the word to try to trip up Christ. What arrogance that he would seek to take on the very word of God with the word of God. And Jesus, of course, knowing the word, using the word, he drives him away. Jesus is unique, for he alone is God and man the Son of God, and the Son of Man. And there, are, there is no other. All others are imposters. Do you believe this? Is this your profession, your confession? Is this your only hope in life and death, that Jesus is the door for you? He is your door. He is your good shepherd. He is your Savior. Indeed, if that is so, praise God, because it is not of anything that you have done, but it's what he has done working in you by his word and spirit. We'll move on then to consider that Jesus invites sinners. Back in verse 3, we were told that Jesus uh, was allowed in as the shepherd, the doorkeeper let him in and opened up, and the sheep heard his voice, and he calls to his own by name, and he leads them out. Jesus continues to call sinners. He's calling by name. It's a particular call. It's an effectual call as the Holy Spirit works in the heart of a dead sinner. So often and so rightly we refer to the Old Testament prophecy about the new covenant that God comes and finds us with a heart of stone, hard and dead and impenetrable. By the working of his spirit, supernaturally, he takes out that heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. That's the work of God alone. 
Jesus, when he calls, when he invites sinners to come, he works by his word and spirit. So there's nothing we can boast in. It's what God has done. Some of you have heard of monergism. There's a website called Monergism, and it celebrates this reality. Mono, singular, God works, God acts, God saves. Our salvation is not synergistic. Children, that means that there's this cooperating and a blending of two or more working for our salvation. No, it's all of God, that all the glory would be unto God. We only can enter through the door, and Jesus invites us to come. He came into the world for this purpose. He doesn't go stand over in some corner hoping that eventually some would come to him. Can you imagine if you open a business, children? You get a building, you put in whatever you're selling, you get it all arranged, and you decorate it, and you hire staff, and you put them in there. Each morning, you just come and open the door, and you wait, hoping someone will come. No, if you launch a new business, you want to advertise, you want to make it known. What do you do? You invite people to come to your business. Come check it out. Come try the product. Maybe it's a restaurant. Come try the food. You make an an invitation. How much more wonderful is it that Christ, who has the greatest gift of all, invites us to come. He invites of all sinners, filthy, vile rotten, festering, corrupt, disobedient, rebellious, contrary sinners. Children, you know what this is like. You know when your parents are seeking to get you to obey them and how cantankerous and difficult and obstinate you can be and screaming and wallowing. That's just a small picture of what it is to be sinners. It's an evidence that you are sinners. Jesus comes to those kind of people and he invites us to come to him. For he came into the world Not to save the righteous, but to save sinners. Or to borrow another one of the pictures of who Christ is, he came as a physician to care for those who are sick. But indeed, our condition is far more than an illness to be cured. We're dead, and yet Jesus calls us. Think of the invitation that Jesus gave to Lazarus. Roll back the stone. I use this often because it's so vivid. We are that corpse in the tomb. Roll back the stone. This might be the picture of parents bringing a child to worship. It's as though the door has been opened. The stone has been rolled back. And here you are as a child, dead in your trespasses. And Jesus calls. He says, Lazarus, come forth. Even so, Jesus today calls to you, come to me. He invites sinners to come to him. He freely offers himself to sinners. And he invites, look at verse 9. I am the door. This is our great theme. And look at what he says after that. If if anyone, if anyone enters by me, what? He will be saved. If anyone. Notice that there's no, like in some books, you know, there'd be a a little footnote, another little number, and you're supposed to look down at the bottom of the page, and maybe there's some qualifications. There's not a parenthesis tucked in after that. Say, uh, if anyone, uh, that is only these kind of people. Scripture, God says through the prophet, not many who are wise, not many who are powerful, not many who are wealthy, I'm adding to what's said there, but just it's, that's not who Jesus comes from. He comes for poor, lonely, broken sinners, and he invites us to come. If anyone, Jesus says, that includes any who would hear him and respond, any who would hear the voice of Christ and respond, he's saying, come, come to me. And later on, or earlier, back in chapter 7, we heard, 
his promise, and I will by no means cast you out. If anyone would come unto me, precious souls, sinners, do you hear Jesus calling you today? Then come, come and welcome to Jesus. Remember Paul's bold language, very much in concert with this in Romans. I think it was in the same chapter we saw it. Um, He says, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There's that same idea of if anyone, whosoever, Jesus invites sinners to come. What closely follows this then is that Jesus saves sinners. Again, we read it, but look again at verse 9 as we consider this. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he doesn't say, well, you might get something good. I, I, I got a helium field balloon for you and a bag of cotton candy. What good is that? You know what those helium balloons do? They eventually they deflate, or you let them go, and they disappeared into the, the clouds, right? Cotton candy, it just dissolves so quickly. Jesus says you will be saved. Saved from what? From the wrath of God that abides for sinners. And how great is that wrath that God has for sinners who reject his son? It is an eternity of wrath. It is an eternity in a place that's pictured as being like a lake of burning fire with hot coals and brimstone and unquenchable agony forever and ever. Not this week and next week, but for week upon week, year upon year, for all eternity. Jesus saves sinners from that, for that's what we deserve. Jesus has endured that wrath of God for sinners. And so he can make this invitation, come to me. He will be saved and he will go in. And he will go out and find pasture. Don't stumble over this word picture. You and I don't need to eat grass. Nor do I think we want to eat grass, right? But for the sheep, grass was the food that sustained them. That's what they lived by. And there's this picture of the Savior providing to the sheep the very thing that they need. Certainly we think of Psalm 23. Green pastures. Rich Good grass and still waters. Sheep are terrified of rushing water. They fall into it, they're done for. As in, they die, they drown. But he brings them to still waters, good clear water. This is what the shepherd provides. Jesus provides exactly what we need. Indeed, Jesus, when he says that he will go in and out, we will go in and out, find pasture, he's saying, I will supply all your spiritual needs. With an abundance, we'll find out in just a moment. The point is that Jesus has a purpose for those he saves. And he will make provision for that which he's called us to. We tend to have our own agenda. And what, what's one of the hallmarks of our own agenda? It's self-centered. It's all about me, my mine, I, we've, we've talked about that in sermons in the past. That tends to be, and, and the things that we crave, that we think we need, which are nothing more than evil wants, they ultimately are destructive for us. But Jesus knows what we need, and he will supply that for us. Indeed, we will go in and out through him. There's the promise of life in heaven. The thieves would just keep us bound up in the earth to perish with them. Jesus wants to provide us an abundance. Notice what he goes on to say. Um, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And here's this contrast. The thief 
does not come except, what is his purpose? What does the thief come to do? To steal and to kill and to destroy. That's what the thief comes to do. Does that sound like a good life? You think uh, having things stolen from you, being killed and destroyed, that, that's very clear to every single one of us that is not a positive thing. That would be very detrimental. That would be uh, life-altering, life-ending. It's not a good life. It's not enjoyable. But the thieves and the robbers are liars. They will promise you health, wealth, and your best life now. And if you just follow them, their plan, their gospel, well, but it's all good news for who? For them. People send in their donations or put their money in the plate to building up those who propagate a false gospel. Their gospel is not good news. They're thieves. They steal. They kill. They destroy. But Jesus, what a contrast. He saves. Jesus doesn't say, if you're going to follow me, if I'm going to be the door for you, if I'm going to be your shepherd, you've got to give me all your wealth. Now, there's in a sense, like the rich young ruler, you need to leave that aside. But Jesus is saying, surrender yourself to me. Abandon yourself to me. Jesus may let you keep what you have. He may take it from you. He will do what's best for you so that you grow and flourish spiritually. But he's not there to uh, raid your pantry. He's come that you might have these pastures in the abundance of what God would supply. Apart from God, that's who we are. We are apart from God. Jesus brings us near. We're guilty before God. Jesus satisfies our debt. We're under God's wrath. Jesus bore the wrath of God for our sin. And if you're in Christ, think about this. If you are in Christ, you will never, ever, ever, ever know the wrath of God. It's spent. Christ bore it. It's complete. That's what John writes. He is the propitiation for our sin. He has borne it. He has endured it. And God is satisfied. So that if we're in Christ by faith, there's no wrath for the people of God. Good pastures. Apart from Christ, you're hell bound. Jesus saves you from hell. And he takes you to heaven. Remember what Jesus told the the thief next to him on the cross. Today, this very day, you will be with me in paradise. What is it Paul that celebrates when he seems to be afflicted perhaps unto death? And he says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's what Christ has secured for. What pastures has he supplied? No thieving, no stealing, no destroying, but no, an abundance of good things. We were strangers, wandering lost. Jesus seeks and he finds us and he brings us to his father. And God becomes our father. Some people are orphans. They've grown up in difficult, miserable even, home lives. Jesus brings you into the family of God where God will be your father. You become a child of God, never alone again, ever. You can even go anywhere in the world and you will find the body of Christ. Um, I've had the privilege in God's providence to travel to a number of countries. And every place we've gone, we found other believers. We may have a hard time communicating, but you can go in one of their worship service. You may not understand, but you, are no, you know what's going on. Because they're like-minded. They have the same Savior. They're seeking to worship and glorify God. And you can join with them and worship and glorify God too. Everywhere we go, we have the family of God. Let's consider some questions for application. Have you bought into a false gospel? 
You might say, but pastor, I'm converted. I know I'm converted. I know no doubt about it. But do not sheep get deceived sometime? Do we not get caught up with false messages? Have you bought into a false gospel? Uh, are there times when you think you can do enough? What about when you've sinned? What do you do? You think you've got to beat yourself up some before you can go to the Father? You think you need to get something squared away before you can go to the Father through Christ? That's a false gospel. You've sinned. You come to the Father in Christ immediately. And I can assure you by experience that when you don't do that, you will sin more. You will compound your sins. The good news of the gospel is just come, confess your sins, knowing he's faithful and just to forgive you from your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Have you accepted cheap substitutes for Christ? Perhaps you have. Perhaps there's idols in your life that you've been following and pursuing. Perhaps you've been caught up in some form of idolatry that has just controlled you and consumed you. You're ashamed. You're embarrassed. Run to Jesus. Just go to Jesus. He saves sinners. And he will lead you in green pastures. And furthermore, Jesus gives an abundance. Jesus gives abundant life. These verses in the Bible that provide the most extreme full. There are verses in the Bible that try most extreme and helpful contrast. This is one of them. Look at it again. Jesus offers pasture, but he, he's going to expand on that. But first he says, look at this contrast. The thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come, so here's another one who's come. I have come in that they may have life. That's wonderful. But look at the extremity of the contrast. And that they may have it, that is life, more abundantly. Jesus is not stingy. He gives it to the full. Idols of man's making, they're truly nothing more or less than thieves and robbers. They're always promising happiness and joy and satisfaction, but never delivering. They're always stealing, killing those who would worship them and follow after them. Isn't that what the promise of God is? I think it's Psalm 115. There's the description of, of an idol. You know, they have eyes, but they do not see. Ears, but they do not hear. Mouths, but nothing comes out of the mouths. They have hands that don't move. Feet that don't move. What's the picture? They're dead. And the psalmist goes on to say the truth of God. And those who follow them will be like them. You follow after idols, you will be dead. What a contrast. Come to Christ, follow him by faith. And he gives life. What do we deserve? We don't deserve anything, nothing good. And yet Jesus gives an abundance of good things, not just life, but an abundant life. What does that look like? There's, there's more we could say. We could do sermons on this, but just let me, in the few minutes we have left, let me say this, this that God gives us in his son, that Christ provides, it's, we're not dying. We're not dead. We're not perishing. He gives us life. It's an abundance of not hell, but heaven. In the fullness of heaven, which we, we don't comprehend, I have not seen, nor has ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man, what God has in store for his people. It's such an abundance. But Jesus also gives us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who enters into our foul, festering tomb, like Lazarus' corrupt tomb, the Holy Spirit who comes in and, and gives us a new heart, does the work of regeneration, renews our will, so that we would look to Christ, the one who gives us faith that we, it's ours now, and we exercise it. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved. Jesus doesn't say, okay, I'm going to take the Holy Spirit away. All right, you can take it from there. There's no way. We can't take it from there. 
He gives us the Holy Spirit. And that's when Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity that dwells within us. You've heard me talk about this before. Whenever I meditate upon this reality, that the Holy Spirit lives in me, even in me. The Holy Spirit, who at the beginning of creation hovered over the face of the deep, and and the vastness and the expanse of what that is, it's beyond our comprehending. The Spirit who hovered over all that. And as this word, the Father spoke, and the word went forth, the Son, the Holy Spirit did. And out of nothing, things were formed. Out of chaos, things were put in order. He created, he separated light and dark, earth and water, created plants and animals and birds and sea creatures, and then created man of the dust of the earth in the image of God, that Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who went out with the armies of Israel when God would send him and confound the enemies so that they would turn on each other and hundreds of thousands would perish. Or they would just hear a a, a wind or the sound of an approaching army. They'd just hear something and tear. They would run and flee and just leave everything behind. The Holy Spirit who does these mighty things. Wow. Think about that. God, who is infinite and eternal and unchangeable, somehow the Holy Spirit dwells in us. That should cause us to be in wonderment. I will use that word that you know I say we should use rarely. That God gives us the Holy Spirit to dwell within us is awesome. That strikes awe when we meditate upon it. This is just one thing to consider, the abundance that Jesus gives to us. He goes before us to lead us the way. He goes before us providing and protecting as the good shepherd. And all the while that he's caring for us very individually, knows us, knows our name and is focused in order in our day, he's also ordering all of the vastness of creation. You've seen those the, the telescope pictures that look out into the vastness of the universe? Incomprehensible, Right? Really, incomprehensible. Jesus is governing all that, even as he cares for us. An abundance that he gives us. We've seen something of this abundance that is in Jesus demonstrated in John's gospel thus far. The wedding at Canaan. They ran out of wine. He said, fill up those ceremonial jars with water. And then he miraculously converted into the best vintage of wine that's ever been produced. And not just, you know, a couple cups for, you know, like the bride and the groom. There was more than the crowd that could have eaten. If I remember right, we were talking like some 130 gallons or something. That's a lot of wine. I got quite a few wine bottles stored in my house that have wine. And I don't have anywhere close to that much. The abundance of Christ. What about when he meets the woman at Sychar who came to draw water at noon? And what does he promise to her within her soul? A fountain of living water. Ever flowing. He doesn't say, you know, know, I'll give you a little drink of my spiritual water. No, he says, by my spirit working in you, I will give you a fountain of living water. What about the paralytic laying beside the pool of a seda? This might be lost on us. He's lost the ability to walk. It seems as though that he once could. But he has laid there 38 years paralyzed. And Jesus doesn't just heal his limbs and say, go find a physical therapist and learn how to walk again. No, he gives him an abundant healing. He suddenly has the ability and the strength in his limbs and the coordination that he can get up and he can walk. A picture of the abundance of Christ. What about the, the 5,000, which was 5,000 men? There were women and children too. Five little loaves and two fish. And he fed them all. So they were all satisfied. And then what did they take up? Was it five loaves and two fishes? You know, was it just crumbs? No, each of the disciples had a basket and it was full. 
a picture of the abundance in Christ. Let us never doubt our Savior ability to give us life and to give it to us in abundance. He is more than able. As we close, I want to consider Paul's words, just part of that long sentence at the opening in Ephesians chapter 1. Here's the picture of the abundance of what Christ is, what God has done in Christ. Paul begins with doxology and praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. And Paul goes on for about five or six more verses. Jesus gives abundant life. Jesus is unique. There is no other like him. He is the son of God and the son of the man, and he came into the world to save sinners. He alone is suited to save sinners. This is what the Father sent him into the world to do. Do you need life? Every one of us would say, yes. Do you want abundant life? We do. Do you desire every eternal life? It's found in Christ alone. If that's what you desire, come to Jesus. He says, if anyone comes, I will no wise cast out. And to those of you who have come, rejoice. You know something of what it is to have Christ as your door, whereby you've entered in. And having entered in, you go in and out in your life through him, he ever watching over and protecting you. What a glorious, remarkable Savior we have. Amen. Father, we ask that you would bless us as having heard these things, uh, that you would uh, plant them deep within our heart, that they would find fertile soil there and, and grow up and bear an abundance of fruit for you. Lord, be glorified in this. Lord, continue to call our little ones to yourself. As they grow in understanding, the things that they've heard will become clearer uh, as their years go on. And Lord, by your spirit, for you're not hindered by how much they know, by your spirit, O oh God, even from their youngest days, quicken them. Even our infants, Lord, O Holy Spirit, enter in and save them for your glory. Lord, bless us all to rejoice in our Savior who is the door to us and for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.